Welcome to the Lakeside Baptist Church Podcast. We pray you are blessed as you hear the Word of God today. For more information regarding Lakeside Baptist Church, please visit lakeside.asn.au. Well, uh, I decided uh, today, uh, normally what happens, we kind of, in the lead up to Christmas, uh, we look at all the kind of the passages that kind of lead up to Jesus' birth. Christmas Day, we look at the passage of Jesus' birth, and then January, we kind of like do whatever we want, um, which is lots of fun. Uh, But I thought it'd be really fun today to look at some of those passages that kind of still like in the infancy narrative, but just after Jesus has been born. Um, So we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2 still, and kind of just following on from that narrative uh, that comes after uh, Jesus' birth. Uh, So really looking forward to that. But before we get into it, I want to show you a picture of a guy on the screen. Uh, This guy, his name is Adrian Carton DeVot. Definitely pronouncing it wrong, but I gave it a go. Uh, So he kind of grew, he's born in kind of the end of the the, kind of the 1800s. um, So like somewhere around 1880s. Uh, maybe 70s, uh, but he uh, fought in the Boer War, World War One, and World War II. Um, so he, over that time, he was shot um, at least seven times. Uh, he, in World War I, uh, he was shot in the face, lost his eye, and he also lost his hand to an explosion. Um, still somehow managed to wa- make his way into World War II as a soldier, was shot down over the Mediterranean Sea, swam to shore to Italy, was captured as a POW, um, and as a 60-year-old POW with one eye and one hand, uh, thought it good to try and tunnel his way out of the prison camp. Um, And so this one-eyed, one-armed guy tunnels his way successfully out of the prison camp uh, and then uh, tries to make his way by passing and pretending to be an Italian peasant. Uh, He spoke no Italian uh, and one of the key things about uh, being in disguise is being kind of like everyone else, Uh, but when you're missing an eye and a hand, it's quite hard to fit in. Uh, And so not long after, he was recaptured, uh, but he managed to make his way through the war. He lived a long and happy life, uh, albeit missing some pieces. But he uh, is someone who I look at and think, wow, he would have lived through some stuff. Uh, and, and so he would have. So he lived through the Boer War. He lived through World War One. Uh, he would have lived through um, the, the Spanish Flu, the Great Depression, uh, everything that happened through like both World Wars. Uh, he was still alive when uh, the Vietnam War was starting, and, and everything that was kind of happening through those times. You think of all the technological discoveries, everything that was going on, and you think about just all the stuff that that guy would have experienced throughout his life. And, and, and you kind of think, like, how does that shape someone? How does that, uh, how does that kind of work? And what does that, what does that look like? And, and as I look to my grandparents, like, think, seeing the things that they experienced throughout their life was also super significant as well. So, so for my grand, like one of my grand, he, they, he can remember getting his first washing machine. He can remember getting his first fridge. He can remember, you know, all those different things. Uh, where I kind of grew up in the era, era where I can't remember a time where my parents uh, didn't have a mobile phone or a uh, computer. In, in fact, as a toddler, I'm pretty sure I flushed uh, my dad's mobile phone down the toilet. He wasn't happy about that, uh, but that's okay. He still loves me. Um, so, but. Seeing what someone grew up with influences how we see them and the things that they experience influence what it would have been like. 
Um, and so for my generation, like we don't know a time without technology, uh, but for a lot of you, like there are things that you've seen and experienced uh, that would blow my mind. Just the things that you've lived through and, and it's a different thing and it shapes your life in a completely different way. And, and as we look at this story, we're gonna be looking at the story of Simeon and Anna. And so Simeon and Anna are both described as older people when Jesus has just been born. So it says that, that Anna was about 84 um, and, and Simeon was kind of at that stage where he was waiting to die. Uh, and, and so they, they both have lived through some significant things. And, and last time I gave you a history lesson, um, I'm going to give you one again. Uh, I think it was the 1st of January and if you're here, you're committed. Um, so uh, thanks for coming. Uh, we're doing a history lesson. It's going to be lots of fun. Uh, so if we get our little timeline on the screen, uh, this is kind of the timeline leading up to Jesus' birth. So about 150 years ago, uh, the Greeks were kind of in control of, of all the Jews. They were the, the nation that was in charge. Um, and there were some Greek leaders that weren't very nice to the Jews. And so the Jews, uh, they had this big rebellion. Uh, they tried to fight the Greeks and trying to fight for some sort of independence. They managed to establish themselves a, a kind of a ruler. They still fell under the, the, the Greeks, but they, they were kind of had their own ruler, so they kind of had a little bit of something. And, and as the Greek empire kind of started kind of collapsing and falling apart, uh, and some other wars were going on around, they managed to establish themselves as a nation. And if you think about the story of what Israel were about, they were about being their own important nation. That was what they were there for. They wanted to be a nation. So now, so about, so, uh, so about 110 years before Jesus comes along, they're back. They've got a king, they've got a nation, they're independent, they're not paying tax to anyone, no one's bullying them, they're their own nation, which is great. Uh, about kind of between um, 100 years to kind of 80 years uh, before Jesus comes along, uh, there's this big civil war. So in, in the Bible, you read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You kind of group them all together. Uh, they would hate that because they had a big war where they killed each other um, for about 20 years. Uh, they had a big fight and, and that kind of was this big rift in, in the Jewish world. Uh, so there's this big fight that's going on and, and it's kind of, you know, this really, really significant event in, in the Jewish history. And then 60 years before Jesus comes along, uh, the Romans come along. And so the Romans, they siege Jerusalem. Uh, they, they make Jerusalem kind of like their own little, uh, kind of a little province. And so like the king is now more like a mayor uh, and he kind of has to do whatever the Romans do. The, the Jews have to pay tax again. They're not their own nation. They're not very powerful. Um, and, and Jewish identity is kind of crushed because they're not their nation anymore. And so things start to fall apart. Things start to kind of disintegrate. And, and then all of a sudden we have this guy called Herod who then sieges Jerusalem again 30 years later. And so Herod's not even a Jew. Uh, he kind of puts an end to all the, these kings uh, of, uh, of Jerusalem and of the, of the Jewish people. And so the, the, the kings have gone. Uh, they're no longer in control at all. And so now you have a, a Roman kind of nation that's controlling a uh, a not Jewish kind of king who's ruling over the Jewish people. And, and if you think, so if Anna's about 84, Simeon's kind of at that point of his life where he's waiting to die, they're kind of born around that time of the Civil War. So they're born into the Civil War. Uh, when they're kind of in their 30s, uh, Roman comes along and sieges Jerusalem and takes over Jerusalem. When they're in their 60s, Herod overthrows uh, Jerusalem again and then take away their king and so throughout the space of their life there's a lot of war and everything's falling apart 
That's what they've experienced. And, and you've got to think about how does that influence someone living their life? When you're born into a, a nation that is their own nation, they've got their own king, and, and we see that slowly fall apart over the course of their life to the point where they're oppressed, they, they don't have any control, like they have no identity anymore, they're not a significant group of people anymore. That influences your life. Seeing all that throughout the course of your life influences your life. And so when we come to Simeon and Anna, I, I want us to see things through that lens of what they have experienced, of the life that they have lived. And, and so uh, we're going to uh, look at the passage and then we're going to zoom in on a couple things uh, in that as well. Uh, so we're going to start in Luke chapter 2, verses 22. So it says, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem present, to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Um, so before we do that, i go any further into Simeon. Uh, so a couple of things that are worth noting is that, so first, uh, in that passage beforehand, um, I jumped a little bit too far ahead, but that's okay. Um, so uh, the purification, and this is all them following the law perfectly, flawlessly. So, so uh, Luke is trying to demonstrate that Jesus and Jesus' family are not these renegade Jews who are just running around saying wild things and doing things because they feel like it. So Jesus throughout his life said a lot of controversial things and, and made a lot of really bold statements, but it wasn't coming from a family that wasn't really doing the right thing. It was a faithful family who followed God and was passionate about following God. The, the other thing that's worth noting there is, is that uh, the the kind of the law where it says that a pair of doves or two young pigeons is actually kind of like a law footnote. Um, and so what would happen when you do the purification uh, after a, a child has been born is that normally you would sacrifice a lamb and, and then a dove or a pigeon. Uh, but there's a stipulation that if you are too poor, then you can do two pigeons or two doves instead. So there's two things going on there. So one, Luke is demonstrating that, that Mary and, and Joseph are faithful to the Lord. They're following things as they should. Uh, but also it shows that, that Mary and Joseph, they're not well off, which, which kind of builds that story that we see as, as where they come from and where Jesus comes from. Uh, as we continue on, uh, so, so now there's a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed uh, to him by the Holy Spirit uh, that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So we're at, this is a big deal because Simeon has, has seen everything fall apart. So Messiah is a pretty important thing in his life at this point in time. So, so moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts uh, when parents brought in the child to, to do for him what the custom of the law was required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you, are, you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel." 
The child's uh, mother and father marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the, the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and the sword uh, will pierce your own heart, to, your own soul too. So referring to Jesus' death, uh, that's foreshadowed there as well. So there's also a prophet Anna who uh, was the daughter of Penuel uh, of the tribe of Asher. Uh, she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage uh, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them at that very moment. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So we've got two witnesses, uh, both who are old, both who are faithful. One is a man, one is a woman. Uh, and so Luke is kind of continuing this theme of, of all these people who testify to who Jesus is. Uh, and then as we finish off, so when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law, so once again, they are following the law faithfully. Uh, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Uh, and the child grew and became strong, was filled with wisdom and the grace uh, of God was on him. Uh, so, uh, in this passage, uh, one of the things that is really interesting is, is that prayer that Simeon prays, uh, for a few reasons. So, one is that a lot of people, when you look at the commentaries, uh, they're actually a little bit confused of what the prayer is doing there. Uh, it's actually, it's a little bit out of place. Uh, it could very easily not be there and the story reads very, like almost probably better uh, without the prayer. And so a lot of people have tried to like speculate, what is this thing doing here? Has someone added it, has like Luke added it in later on and or has Luke like borrowed like a hymn that people would sing and use that for Simeon's prayer? Like what is going on here? Uh, and one of the things that's really interesting is that uh, the language of the prayer, so I think Luke put it in there on purpose for a particular thing. And so the language actually mimics very, very closely uh, the, the Greek translations of a lot of Jewish uh, prayers and, and particular type of Jewish prayers. Uh, I'll, sh I'll give you a couple of examples. So one is in uh, Isaiah 37, uh, and, and it says, uh, so the end of the prayer says, so now Lord our God deliver us uh, from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. Uh, there's another one in Daniel 9. Uh, the end of the prayer uh, goes like this. So now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant for your sake, Lord, uh, with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because you are because we are righteous but because you your because of your great mercy lord listen lord forgive lord hear and act for your sake my god do not delay because your city and your people bear your name and, and so there's this consistent thing where the, these prayers prop up through the Old Testament. They have a very, very similar structure. They use very similar language. And, and this prayer that Luke prays has a lot of those similar characteristics. And, and the prayers follow a theme. They, they come at a time where people, they, the Israelites, the Jews, have drifted away from God. They found themselves in a lot of trouble. And, and they ask God to forgive them and to smite their enemies so that people would realize that God is God. So they disobeyed God, they're in trouble, 
hey God, come and help us to conquer our enemies so people will know that you are God. Because if Israel fails, then people won't see how great you are. And this is kind of a prayer that we pray sometimes. So there's times when we drift away from God or, or we, and you know, we kind of run ourselves into a bit of trouble and we say, God, like, how about kind of coming in for us right now? Like that's something that we do. Like we, we, we drift away from God uh, and then we find ourselves in trouble and we're like, oh God, hey, can you come save the day? Because then I'll know that you're God and I'll know how great you are. And this is something that the, the Jews are seen praying throughout different things, throughout exile, throughout times when enemies were attacking them. Um, but Simeon's prayer is different. Um, the first thing that you notice that is different about Simeon's prayer is that Simeon doesn't need saving. In, in fact, uh, in Simeon's prayer, he says, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, uh, which was a euphemism for saying, Lord, you can let me die now. So Simeon, Simeon is he's not interested in being saved. He's not interested in, in God kind of coming through for him. He's saying, God, like, you, everything's done now. There's nothing more. You have achieved everything. I can go. He, he asks for nothing. He doesn't say, God, can you give me, let me see him as a teenager to see, make sure he's doing the right thing. He doesn't say, can you also uh, speed up this process so we can kind of be a nation again? He asks for nothing. The second thing is, is that Simeon sees the victory of Jesus uh, and the victory of God in Jesus as a baby. Which is interesting, right? Because for every person in that time, victory was a fairly black and white thing. You're either not paying tax to someone or impressed by someone, or you are. You're either someone else belong to another nation or you're your own nation. Uh, and for, for Simeon, it wasn't that. It was actually, Jesus is here, salvation is here. It's, we've won because this child is here. See, for Jesus, the victory is, so for Simeon, the victory is Jesus as a baby there in front of him. Nothing more, nothing less. For Simeon, Jesus is the victory. It's not a big nation. It's not a big army. It's not a ruler that's, that's overthrowing other nations around him. It's not having political power. It's not all of a sudden having a lot of wealth that comes with it. But it's that Jesus is here. Salvation is here. This is our victory. The, the third thing and I think this is the, the hardest thing to, to wrap our heads around, is that Simeon sees the victory not just for Israel. And so you notice that like in, in a lot of the, the Jewish prayers, it's saying, bring victory to Israel so that people will see that you are God. But for Simeon, he sees Jesus as a revelation that is a light for all nations. Now think about that. These nations that you, are, that you are praying for and you are celebrating that Jesus has come are the nations that you have spent your life being decimated by. 
for, for Simeon. The, the, the nations that he's celebrating have received salvation are the nations that have made him pay tax. They're the, the nations that have come through and killed thousands of people in your city. They're the ones that have, have kind of made a fool and a mockery of your temple where you worship your God. Where for Simeon, Jesus is a saviour not just to Israel, and not just a time when where people would be punished and realize that, that God is God, but a time when Jesus will be a light to all nations. And, and as, we, as we head into the new year, um, it's always a good time to kind of just reassess things and, and to kind of like just ask ourselves some questions and reset and see where we're at. And, and this is my, my question is, do we have Simeon's mindset? Do we have Simeon's mindset? Because Simeon's mindset is, is not an easy one to have. It's actually really, really hard. Because there are times when we want to conquer. There, there's times where we don't see victory in Jesus. There's times when it's, there's people that have hurt us and we want them to, to suffer God's wrath. But Simeon's mindset is different. And so I've got three kind of questions for us to ask ourselves as we head into the new year. So the first one is, are your underlying expectations more important than Jesus? And, and I know it's a bit of a confusing one, uh, but so I'll, like the, the easiest way to explain it is like when you go into a job interview and your, the interviewer says, why do you want this job? You say, I love, this, I love this kind of work, like this industry, I love this organization, I'm really excited to, to work with these people, and, and I love the job description, it seems like something that would really work to my strengths. And, and employees like, great, this is awesome, this guy's in. And, and so if you got into the job, into like five weeks into the job, and you'd be like, hey mate, like, I just noticed I haven't been paid for five weeks. Uh, you might say, oh, you, I thought you said you just loved the job. You didn't say you want to get paid. Uh, like, that's, like there's underlying expectations that we have. There's, there's overlying expectations. Like, oh, like I love the job. I, you know, I, but there's also underlying expectations as well. Like, I, I want to get paid for this. And, and the same things like when we, like, um, we have it with, like, with volunteers as well. So um, if, if, let's say if I'm running jet ski camp, um, it's going to be great. It's going to be good for the youth ministry. Um, it's going to you know, give a bit more, but it's going to be great. Jet ski camp. Um, and, and so let's say if I have a leader uh, that wants to come along on jet ski camp and I say, why do you want to come along on jet ski camp? And they said, because I want an opportunity to invest in the young people uh, in, in our congregation. And I'm like, great, this is awesome. Come along on camp. And, and day three comes in and, and the leader says, hey, I thought I was going to be jet skiing. It's like, oh, no, I, you just wanted to invest in people. You're, you're not going on jet ski. But there's an underlying expectation. They, they want to come on jet ski camp because they want to ride a jet ski. They, they want to invest in kids and there's this overlying expectation where they want to invest in people and help people love Jesus. But there's also an underlying expectation where it's like, I want to ride a jet ski. That's what, I'm also here for that too. And so we have overlying expectations, but we also have underlying expectations. Now, when we follow Jesus, and for Simeon, when, when he saw Jesus, there was no underlying expectations. He was happy because Jesus had come. There was nothing under the surface. It was Jesus has come. It was not Jesus has come and I'm now better off financially. 
It was not Jesus has come and now we have a big army. And for us, sometimes we have this thing of like, I'm a Christian because of Jesus, but I also have this, this underlying expectation of, oh, like I, it also is a, is a great community. And I, I'm here because like my friends are here or I'm here because like there's good coffee after the service. Um, but, and, and those things are good, like we can enjoy those things, but if those underlying expectations are taken away, are we still there for Jesus? So if you went into a job and they said, oh, I thought, like, I didn't realize you wanted to get paid, you might, that might be an underlying expectation where you might leave. You might, oh, I actually need to pay for food. Um, but sometimes our underlying expectations are taken away at, and that kind of almost pulls us away from Jesus or distracts us from Jesus. And so, are you satisfied in, in just Jesus? Or do you have underlying expectations? That is a, a question that we need to ask. Is, is Jesus enough? If everything else is taken away, is Jesus still enough? The, the second question that we need to ask ourselves is, do we see victory in Jesus? For Simeon, like, there was nothing more to be done. It was victory has come because Jesus is here. And, and there's two kind of things that, that are interesting when, w- that we can see when we don't see the victory in Jesus. Um, so throughout history, there's been times uh, when people have felt that the victory of Jesus uh, needs a little bit of help. Uh, now, because we believe that so Jesus died on the cross for our sins, Jesus has conquered sin and conquered death, Jesus is going to come back one day and he's going to judge the world and, and nothing's going to stand in between that. Right? That's, it. That's, that's happening. Jesus, we're on the winning team. It's great. Welcome. Uh, but... In between now and then, sometimes it doesn't feel like we're winning. So uh, a few hundred years ago, uh, a bunch of Christians noticed that uh, there was a massive move of other religions coming into the West. And they thought, this is a problem. Jesus is in trouble. So what are we going to do? We're going to go to war with them. We're going to wipe them out, and that way we're going to make sure Jesus is still going to be victorious so he can come back at the end. When, when this Protestant Reformation came along uh, and, they, and they, the Catholics noticed that, oh, like these, these people are out to get us, what did they do? They're like, well, we've got to protect Jesus. Victory might not come, so we're going we're gonna to kill him. They, they came out and, and, and to try to stop this movement from happening to protect Team Jesus and make sure the victory still happened. Uh, there was this small group of Christians that emerged uh, called the Baptists uh, and they started dunking people under the water as adults uh, and so they were like, we've got to get rid of these people. They're, they're getting in the way of Team Jesus. So what do they do? They dunk them and leave them under there until they s- stop moving. Like they, that's what they did. They, because they've got to protect Team Jesus. We've got to make sure the victory still happens. And, and, and sometimes we feel like the victory isn't happening or the victory's being threatened and so we've got to go up and fight. And we fight dirty because we're worried about the victory. We've got to make sure it still happens. And we, we do unspeakable things because we've got, to, we've got to hide things. We've got to sweep things under the carpet and make sure no one sees that they're happening because we, otherwise the victory might not come. 
but Jesus is victorious. And, and Simeon, he saw that with the baby. We can see that with, with seeing Jesus die and rise again, conquering sin and death. Jesus is victorious. He's going to win. We, there, there's still some things to go, but it's different. Because we aren't, we aren't trying to ensure victory, but we're trying to magnify the victory of Jesus. We're trying to be people who demonstrate the gospel of Jesus and show the gospel of Jesus, show the light that is the revelation to all nations. That is our role. Not to fight dirty to make sure Jesus can still be victorious, but to be a light for all people, to demonstrate to all people. The other thing about the victory of Jesus uh, that sometimes gets in the way on a, on a smaller level uh, because I don't think any of you guys are going on any crusades uh, in the next few weeks, uh, which is great, but there's other things that we can do. Um, so often we, we see like our victory as God's victory. Um, and, and, you know, be like, if, uh, if, if, if church is this way, uh, then, then it's God's way. If, if I'm victorious, God is victorious. But it's actually the other way around, right? So if God is victorious, we are victorious. And that's a different mindset. Because if victory is in Jesus, when God is victorious, we are victorious because we are on God's team. And when we apply that to a church context, everything we do looks different. Because everything we're doing is for the victory of, of God, to, to illuminate the light of God. So uh, I pick on worship because it's the easiest one and it's really fun. But you'd be like, all right, how many songs we sing? It's like, oh, I want four, I want five. Well, what is going to shine the light of Jesus? Do we have drums? Do we not have drums? How loud do we have the drums? What is going to bring the illumination of Jesus? What is gonna, we're not fighting to win so then God can win, but we want to illuminate the light of Jesus. Do we have electric guitar? Do we have bass, saxophone, organ? What is going to illuminate the light of Jesus? What is, going to, what is going to show our young people who Jesus is? What is going to show our old people who, who Jesus is? What is going to show the in-between people who Jesus is? How are we going to share Jesus with everyone? That is the, the question that we ask ourselves and that is the lens we look through, not our personal victory, not trying to, to conquer people who, who do uh, different songs or, or, or sing in different ways, but how do we show Jesus? How do we share the gospel of Jesus? And, and this kind of leads us to our last point, is that do you see the victory of Jesus as something for all people? For Simeon, to, to do that, to, to, to show the light of Jesus to people who had made his life one big painful story of, of losing everything that was a part of his identity, to want them to see the light of Jesus is something that is just incredibly hard to fathom. But the light of Jesus and the victory of Jesus is something for all people. And, and, it, and sometimes we have kind of this us versus them mentality where it's like we're the Christians and, and we've got to fight the non-Christians um, 
and, and make sure, you know, once again, we've got to win because we've got to make sure Jesus is victorious. But that's not how we're, we want to, we don't want to fight them. We want them to come on our team. And, and doing that is not conquering them. It's actually us trying to share the gospel with them. It's us trying to demonstrate the gospel to them. It's not about, we're not trying to fight to get more political power. We're trying to share the gospel. And, and those things aren't bad, but we want to share the gospel. We want the light to be something for all nations. We want people from even the people that hurt us, even the people that make our lives hard, even the people that get up on TV and say that Christians are bad and that we're doing the wrong thing because A, B and C, even the people in, in, in church that give us a hard time, the light of Jesus and the victory of Jesus is for all people. And in everything we do, we want all people to see the gospel more every day. We want people to see the gospel more clearly, to know the gospel more intimately so we can understand our brokenness more, so we can understand the grace of Jesus more, so that we can all draw closer to God and rejoice in the grace that God brings through Jesus. The victory of God is for all people. And so do you see Jesus' victory as something for all people? That is the question we ask because... Jesus didn't see the offenses we committed against him. He didn't see our rejection of him as something that he decided to come back with revenge. He didn't decide that in us trying to claim a victory over Jesus that he would just conquer us and say goodbye, but rather he decided that he would extend grace and mercy to us and allow us to come to him. Jesus decided to allow us to share in his victory through the grace and mercy of Jesus' death on the cross. We weren't worthy of that. But Jesus did it anyway. And, and, and we're going to head into a, a time of communion. And so if you get your cups out um, and you can peel them back and make a lot of noise... Um, But as we, as we head into this time, I just want us to be able to spend a little bit of time thinking about what that means. See, we... We believe in a God who is victorious. But we believe that in a God who is victorious because he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. It wasn't just run through and claim victory, but he died. He sacrificed himself for us. He was crucified for us. And, and so... We can, um, we're gonna, I'm going to give you a bit of time for reflection. In that time, you can, you can eat the cracker, uh, and then we'll drink together in a little bit. Uh, but Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And because of that, we get to be a part of that victory. And, and as we head into the new year, I want us to think about how do we 
have the mindset of Simeon, where we see the gospel of Jesus. We see the victory in it. We see the victory in the, in the gospel alone, and we see it uh, as something that, that is a victory that conquers all things, and we see it as something for all people. So, so as you eat the cracker, I want you to remember what that gospel is. Remember the body of Christ who, who died on that cross, his flesh that was broken for us. so that we could be saved. As we look into the cup and see the drink, we remember the blood of Jesus. And remember how it poured out so that we could be forgiven. So that we could be on Jesus' team. So that we could be a part of this victory. But the suffering and the pain that took place so that that could happen. And the love that he gave us and extended to us so that that could happen. Let's drink together. Father, we are broken people. We don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve your mercy. And Lord, we, we want to bring before you all these things that we've done where we've fallen short, where we've, we've failed to serve you, we've failed to love you, we've failed to, to see the victory of you. But Lord, you're, you're a God of, of mercy and grace. And so we want to thank you for that. We want to thank you that, that you that you love us and care for us. But Lord, we want to be your servants and, and show the victory of Jesus in our lives so that other people can see it. We want to be faithful to you And we want people to see the light of Jesus, to see your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen.